So now I'd like to introduce to you Dr. Marcella Matos. <laughs> I've known Marcella since about 2016, uh, but I've known old Marcella for much longer than that, as many of you may very well as well. She's a, um, an incredible compassion researcher uh, from the University of Coimbra, originally mentored by her professors José Pinto Gaber uh, and Paul Gilbert. And since then, quite literally, has made a prolific contribution to this area of research. But she's also an excellent teacher, a trainer, and a therapist. Uh, we're all in for a real treat tonight. So, without further ado, I bring you Marcella Matos. <laughs> Hello. Can you hear me fine? Yeah? I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> um, so today, I thought I would take you through my personal and research journey from easing suffering to awakening flourishing, all under the beaming light of compassion. Uh, but first, uh, I would like to thank Dr. Stan Steindl, and Dr. James Kirby, where are you, James? There you are, for this prestigious invitation, which I was so honored by and humbled to accept. It's a true delight, a true pleasure to be here, and I deeply admire you uh, and the work that you do here at uh, UQ and the Compassionate Mind Research Group. Uh, not only you are incredible human beings, but you are compassion legends and heroes. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, you are world leaders here at UQ. Uh, you're doing most amazing work at the forefront of compassion science. And thank you also for the wonderful contributions that you've been bringing to the field. To the field. Um, and this is where I come from. I come from the other side of the world, uh, a city, a university city called Coimbra, uh, right in the center of Portugal. And this is uh, the... School of Psychology of the University of Coimbra, where I work at the Center for Research in Neuropsychology and Cognitive Behavioral Intervention. So, today I'm going to take you through the intertwining of my research and my personal journey from shame to compassion. So, let's start with my personal journey. Uh, so, this is the canvas. Uh, back in 2015, it was called the Happy Cafe. It's a cafe used to be in East London, and unfortunately it closed doors after the pandemic. And it was a cafe that provided free food and, and uh, coffee for people who were struggling. And back in 2015, I decided to go to this coffee, to this cafe, even though I don't drink coffee, unlike most of you. Uh, I drink tea, but I decided to go there to have some coffee. And I love the, the place, so it, has, it had these walls. You can see a little bit here um, that, was that were just covered in uh, questions about, for example, what is your happy place? Uh, what is the most positive memory from your childhood? Um, and right where, in front of the, the, the table where I sat, this was the question upon the wall. What is your superhero power? And as I was looking through the answers, look what I found. I found that, can you see what it's written there? I can make my hands sweat on command. 
Me too. <laughs> so that's what I wrote there. That's what I wrote there. I wrote, I didn't take a photo, but I wrote there, me too. And this moment was pivotal for me because in this, this was the first moment in my life where I noticed, where I realized that this vulnerability of mine that I, throughout all my life, I saw as some kind of imperfection, a defect, something that made me feel ashamed in many instances, was not only shared by someone else, but it was seen by someone else as a superpower. So in that moment, I think it was the first time I was able to reframe what I perceived back then as my greatest vulnerability as a superpower. Because I could see in that moment how much this bodily idiosyncrasy of mine, something that I didn't choose, taught me so much throughout my life. It taught me to accept and celebrate our imperfections, my imperfections. It taught me about the importance of being accepted, understood, and validated by other people. It taught me about the importance of tolerating suffering, of tolerating what's uncomfortable, because sweating from the palms of your hands and your feet, it's very uncomfortable. And it also taught me about courage, and about the courage that you need to actually go and face things that are difficult in order to pursue goals and things that are important to you in your life. Um, so yeah, this is how I arrived to compassion. Because if it weren't for compassion, compassion that I received from my family, from my parents, from my friends, and that I learned to give myself, I wouldn't be here today. Because I believe that it is in it lies in the, the dark side of our uh, um, humanity, the callous side of our humanity, in our shame, in our suffering, in our anxiety, in our anger. There, it, it is there that the power of compassion lies because it's there, it's in the suffering that compassion may blossom and may flourish. And now on to my research journey, which also took me from shame uh, to compassion. And so it all started in 1999. Yes, I'm that old when I started my, my undergraduate course in psychology. This is Professor José Pinto Gouveia. He was my, my mentor, my PhD supervisor, and he was the one who first told me and taught me about shame and compassion. And so in 2005, I read this book by Paul Gilbert and Bernice Andrews on shame. And then in 2006, I met Paul when he came to Portugal and I did my first training in compassion-focused therapy, which actually was about shame and self-criticism. And it was then that I knew. So I knew I had this special interest on shame, for reasons that you now are aware of. Um, but I was also very interested in looking at that from a different uh, perspective. So with José and Paul, I decided to study shame experiences and shame memories during my PhD. So this is what I looked at. So I investigated whether shame and early shame experiences, how do they operate in your memory? And what is the impact that these experiences that you have throughout your life have on your mental health and well-being? Um, but before I go on to that, uh, what is shame? So if you think about a recent shame experience that you might have had or an older shame experience, you will 
very intuitively understand that shame is a very powerful self-conscious emotion and is also a socially focused emotion. It's an emotion all about how we exist in the minds of other people. And it involves feelings of inferiority, defectiveness, powerlessness, unattractiveness, um, or self-consciousness. And these feelings come along with these um, behaviors, these urges, these desires to disappear, to hide ourselves away, or to conceal our deficiencies. So shame has been regarded as a particularly intense and often uh, incapacitating emotion and described by several authors as one of the most powerful, painful, and potentially destructive human experiences, because it has a transdiagnostic impact on our mental health and well-being. And according to an evolutionary uh, biopsychosocial model of shame, which was uh, uh, conceptualized by uh, Professor Paul Gilbert, shame actually has an adaptive function. Shame evolved from our socially competitive motives to appear attractive in the eyes of others. Um, shame uh, emerges from the fact that we as human beings are a self-aware, identity-forming and highly social species. And for us, one of the most important things is that other people value us, that other people love us, that other people accept us, that other people choose us to be their partners, to be their friends, to be their allies, to be their lovers, uh, to be their uh, um, uh, uh, colleagues. So this is key for us, this need to appear attractive in the minds of others and to be thought of positively and fondly by others. So from an evolutionary perspective, shame is this warning signal, this warning emotion, emotional state that emerges uh, when we believe that others might be viewing us in a negative way. And if they do view us in a negative way, what that means is that they may criticize us, judge us, humiliate us, reject us, reject us, persecute us, or even attack us. And if you think about our evolutionary history when we lived in small tribes, small groups, if we were ostracized, if we were rejected, excluded from a group, we would very likely struggle to survive and we would lose access to very important resources. So this is the story of shame in an evolutionary way. So even though it has this evolutionary, very important uh, function, shame can have a very pathogenic impact on our mental health. And several, an array of studies conducted all over the world have shown that this aversive and, and stressful experience that represents this threat to our social relationships changes one's mental state. Uh, there's a very nice study from Naomi Eisenberger and uh, uh, Matthew Lieberman that shows that shame activates the same neuronal region, regions in our brain that physical pain does, that the suffering component of physical pain does. does. And they, they call this study um, rejection hurts uh, because actually for humans, in order, in, during our evolution, it was very important that our minds, our brains were able to uh, um, identify very quickly if we were being rejected or criticized by others. So shame has a huge impact on our mental health, well-being, and it comes along with an array of body um, and physiological responses. And so the research I conducted during my PhD looked at this. So, looked at how early shame experiences operate as 
shame memories and as painful shame memories. And what we found is that just like any other trauma, like if you think about, imagine a car accident or being assaulted, uh, not assaulted, sorry, robbed, uh, mugged uh, in, on the street, uh, shame memories elicit the same kind of trauma-like qualities in your mind. So they come along with intrusive symptoms, uh, with repetitive thoughts and feelings about, the, about, about the, the event. They come along with avoidance you want to avoid, uh, every, anything to do with the shame experience. They come along with hyperarousal symptoms, so you will feel easily started, angry, anxious. And they create, they create this sense of an ongoing threat to one's sense of self and uh, psychological integrity. And not only that happens, and there's a huge impact on our well-being and how we come to uh, um, believe we exist in the minds of others, but also shame can become central to our self-identity. What does this mean is that when we have these experiences, they can start to define how we see ourselves. They, in a way, shape who we are, or at least who we believe we are in our own eyes and in the eyes of others. And because of this, these shame memories that are traumatic and then become central to, our, to one's identity, they have a huge impact throughout our lives and uh, they magnify our risk for uh, depressive symptoms, anxiety, stress, and they also increase our propensity to then experience shame as adults. Uh, not only that, but we also found when we look at the origins of fears of compassion, which actually we know that compassion is uh, the most important antidote to shame and social connection. So when we look at the origins of fears of compassion, we found that shame memories are an important part of the origins of these resistances, these fears of uh, um, receiving care, compassion and love from others and from oneself. Uh, and so this is what we call the double bind of shame, because not only shame increases our vulnerability to psychological distress, but it also blocks us. It also reduces our openness to seek and receive support and care uh, from others. And this is what we need to actually heal from shame. Uh, so shame experiences can leave deep scars in the self and can be encoded in our autobiographical memory as powerful traumas, damaging one's most cherished and inner sense of identity and humanity and influencing one's psychological well-being throughout life. My next question as I started to research these and come, come across these findings is actually, we all have these experiences, so why? For some of us, they don't seem to be so toxic. What can protect us against shame? So amongst several things, we looked at compassion. And we found in these uh, three studies, what the first of mine was conducted um, in collaboration here with Dr. Ten, Ten Steindl and one of our, Alison Creed, one of our uh, um, honor students, we found that self-compassion actually buffers, it protects us against the negative impacts of shame on our mental health and well-being. And that is true if we look at a general community, generally community population, as in the case of the first study, but it's also true if we think about women and, for example, eating disorders, uh, 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 psychopathology, or in a study where we explore this in gay men. 
um, so our skills and abilities to be compassionate towards oneself in the face of life difficulties may help to reduce the painful negative effects of shame memories on psychological well-being and promote feelings of safeness and contentment. So this is where I came to compassion, where I, when, I, where I, when I arrived to compassion and my path actually crossed with compassion. And I, it was when, when I shifted my research focus from shame to compassion as a way of healing suffering, but also of promoting um, flourishing. And we are aware of the multiple benefits of compassion. These are just examples of the, the array of studies that are out there showing that compassion is has a huge impact, a positive impact on your mental health and well-being. And there are also a number of books you might recognize, uh, a few renowned here authors uh, that you might know that have been pointing out to the huge benefits that compassion has for mental health, our physiology, emotional regulation, social connection, pro-social behavior, uh, coping with stress and adversity, positive parenting styles, healthcare, and I could go on. But what is compassion? What is exactly is compassion? If we think about the word compassion, a lot of words as we, that we associate with compassion can come to our minds. And even though this has been a field that has been researched uh, for at least 20 years now, uh, there's no agreement uh, in, uh, amongst theorists about what compassion is. In compassion-focused therapy, uh, and me personally, I follow this uh, definition of compassion uh, that is based on a Dalai definition of compassion, a Buddhist definition by Paul Gilbert that, sa that says that Compassion is a sensitivity to suffering in oneself and in others that comes along with a deep commitment to try to alleviate or prevent that suffering. So compassion is not the same as love, it's not the same as pity, it's not, it's, it has nothing to do with being weak, being self-indulgent, of su submitting to the will of, the will of others. Compassion is about courage. Compassion is about the courage that we need to notice suffering, engage with suffering instead of running away from it, and then be able to engage in wise and helpful action towards the alleviation or the prevention of suffering. So compassion has these two key components. One is the sensitivity to suffering. The other one is this commitment to try to alleviate and prevent suffering. And they, they correspond to what we call the compassion algorithm, which is based on the care, on the caring motivation algorithm uh, that says that we need, uh, uh, um, our, our minds need a, a way of actually detecting a stimuli, in this case, suffering. So we need to be able to notice and engage with suffering instead of dismissing it or ignoring it. And then we're also a, we also need uh, an ability to actually respond to that, to that stimuli, in this case, making this commitment to engage in wise and committed action. And then compassion has three key qualities. The first is wisdom. Developing the wisdom, the understanding about how our minds work, that we're all evolved human beings, uh, that we are product of evolution, we are shaped by social contexts, and this wisdom also comes with, with this non-judgmental way of looking at us, the world, and others. And another key quality of compassion is courage and strength. 
Paul Gilbert has a saying that I love that says, compassion is the courage to descend to the reality of human suffering. We need courage to be able to engage with suffering and do something about suffering. And finally, caring commitment. So compassion involves action. Tidna Han has a, another saying that I love that says, compassion is a verb. And for me, this says everything about this caring commitment because it, has, it means that compassion means action, compassionate action, do something about suffering. And compassion is not one single thing. It's not only, as I was saying earlier, being kind and soft and nice. No, no, compassion, the way compassion is expressed and manifested and the way we see it out there in our everyday life can take many forms. And these forms that compassion can take are dependent on the context and what the context requires from us in order for us to have compassionate behavior in a certain situation. And another important idea that we need to stress is these flows of compassion. So compassion can, can be directed in different uh, directions, uh, apologies for the repetition, but so we can, we can be compassionate towards others, we can direct compassion towards ourselves, and we can also be open to receive compassion, care, uh, support from others. So one of the questions we had actually was, and this was a study that I conducted with, uh, with also uh, Stan Steindl, Paul Gilbert and other um, uh, uh, students of ours, was looking at exactly what is compassion. And we, we looked at this uh, in a sample of, uh, that we collect in Australia, Portugal and Singapore. And we tried to understand actually what words do people associate with compassion and self-compassion. And we found some differences in these semantic associations that we thought that they were interesting. So um, even though you will see there are some differences between the three countries on the top words, the top three words that people associate with compassion, um, the top word that overall uh, people from these three uh, countries associate with compassion are empathy, kindness and understanding. And when we look at self-compassion, we found that the top three words were acceptance, strength, and understanding. We also explored, in another study, cultural differences in the flows of compassion and also in fears of compassion. Oh. Um, and we found differences between Australians and Singaporeans um, in the flows of compassion. However, the associations between the flows of compassion and the psychological outcomes were not different. What this means is that even though between countries, the way these flows are uh, expressed may, may vary, this doesn't mean that compassion has a different impact on our well-being. And actually, despite these cultural differences, there is research that shows that uh, compassion as a universal protective effect. And some of that uh, data has come out of our multinational compassion and COVID-19 project, where we set up a multinational project uh, to explore this question. Right in the beginning of the pandemic in March 2020, can compassion protect us against the negative impacts of such an, a global, invisible, never-before-experienced threat. And this is where we look at that. So we set up a, a multinational consortium of 23 countries around the world, 44 researchers, and 
we looked at this and what we found was that yes, self-compassion and receiving compassion from others actually mitigate, they buffer against the negative impact that the pandemic has on our mental health and social well-being. And these effects, these effects were consistent across all countries. What this means is that regardless of the levels of compassion, of depression, anxiety, stress that people have in these countries, regardless of these differences, this buffering effect of compassion was the same. And we found the opposite for fears of compassion. So basically, we found that fears of compassion, contrarily to compassion, actually magnifies our vulnerability to be depressed, more anxious, more stressed out, and feel less connected to others in the context of the pandemic. And then we thought, what about trauma? What is the role of compassion and social connection in this experience of trauma throughout the pandemic? And we found that social connection, so feeling socially connected and compassion, actually promote, they facilitated post-traumatic growth in this context, whereas social disconnection, on the contrary, increased vulnerability to post-traumatic stress. And then we also looked at how does compassion in such along across this time during the pandemic longitudinally how does compassion how do the flows of compassion change across countries so we explored this and we were uh, very pleased to find that across multiple countries and nationalities we found that across the pandemic people became more compassionate towards themselves more capable of receiving compassion from others and less fearful of compassion for self and from others. So what I believe this shows us is that this provides evidence for this universal protective effect of compassion and social connection in promoting resilience and buffering against the negative impacts of such an adverse threatening event uh, um, such as the COVID-19 pandemic. But if compassion is universally protected, how did it evolve in us humans? So compassion is an innate, universal, pro-social motivation that we all share as human beings, and that has been central to, throughout our evolution as a species for us to survive and thrive. Yeah, <laughs> that's compassionate Marcella superhero. <laughs> and... Um, and Stan, actually, Stan did these drawings. You can see there the heart by Stan Steiner. Um, yeah, and humans, unlike turtles, humans are not very much like turtles, are they? Because turtles, when they are born, how are turtles? They are born, you know, they hatch from their eggs, right? Millions, millions, I don't know, millions, but maybe thousands of eggs. And then they hatch from the eggs they, with their brothers, little brothers and sisters, and they run out to the sea. Is there any mother turtle? caring for them? No, not really, right? They are, they are born alone and they run to the sea alone. And you know what happens? On, only 98% of baby turtles actually become adult turtles. Most of them die, are eat, are, they are eaten by, by predators. But this doesn't really happen to humans, does it? Because baby humans, this is Clara, my daughter, 
when she was about six months old, I believe. Um, and um, like very cute baby, baby humans, <laughs> like turtles. Um, but yeah, we are much different. We need to be cared for by others. Clara, when she was born, you know, she couldn't feed herself by her, she couldn't feed herself by herself. She couldn't walk. She couldn't talk. She needed to be held, cuddled, loved, played with. So we are born as humans with this ability to care for other human beings, for our not only for, for our, our offspring, but also for other humans around us. And this innate motivation to care for others actually evolved from our mammalian ancestors about 120 20, uh, um, million years ago, uh, thousands of years ago. And it came along with the, the fact that also baby mammals are born with an ability to ask for care from their, 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 their parents, right? So if you look at the animal kingdom, we are, we are, we are born with this innate uh, um, ability to ask for help, to ask for care from others. And a, a range of structures in our brain evolved for us to be sensitive to the care of others and to be physiologically regulated by the care of others. That's why when a baby is born, the first thing it recognizes is the mom's face, the mom's voice. It is soothed and calmed by his or her mom. But this motivation to care and be cared for also evolved in humans in the context of our life in social groups. So for us, as I was saying in the beginning, it is very important to belong, to appear attractive in the eyes of others. So we also evolved around about five million years ago, we also evolved um, this ability to actually detect in our larger social, social group if we were being accepted. And also this ability to care for others in the wider social group. So compassion evolves from the combination of this innate motivation that we have to care and be cared for by others with a set of uh, uh, unique human skills for social and emotional, emotional intelligence that, in, that involve this ability that we have to empathize, to be conscious uh, and aware that we are conscious and to have intentionality in our actions. You won't see a lion in the, in the savanna thinking, how am I gonna torture zebra uh, you know, more efficiently, do we? We don't see a lion do that, uh, but we do as humans. And in the same way that we can apply that intentionality, to a, a callous uh, uh, purpose, we can also use it to direct our compassionate motivation in a helpful way to address suffering. And our human mind is made of this, isn't it? It's made, it has these amazing abilities uh, that bring us uh, um, theater, music, uh, um, this ability that we have to think creatively, anticipate the future, think about the past. The abilities that we have in our minds as human beings also come along with a lot of callousness and a lot of uh, um, a, a huge downside that actually brings us 
depression, anxiety, stress, and makes us the only living being that tortures other living beings. Uh, um, it is responsible for the wars that we see happening. It is responsible for racism, for oppression, for inequality. So our minds, our minds hold this, we have these seeds inside of us. So my question is this, what are the seeds, the competencies in our minds, the powers that we want to cultivate and see flourish? Because, and before I move on to this, uh, uh, our minds, they operate very much like a garden. So in our minds, it will sprout, uh, flourish and grow whatever we actually nurture and cultivate. Because we have a brain there is plastic. And what this means is that we can train our brain and cultivate competencies in our brain that can change and transform our mental health and well-being and promote flourishing. And this is what compassion-based interventions have been doing, <laughs> at least attempting to do. Uh, and so these intervention programs are aimed at, specifically aimed at cultivating uh, uh, compassion for oneself and others have been developed and have been proved effective in improving well-being, health, psychophysiological regulation and pro-social behavior. Um, and a lot of studies are out there um, actually proving and uh, demonstrating that these interventions are effective in improving our well-being and in reducing mental health difficulties. And so a lot, of, uh, um, a lot of studies and research has been done on this, on cultivating compassion in different settings and populations. And here at the University of Queensland, you are at the forefront of this endeavor. So you've been doing amazing work uh, uh, and showing that compassion-focused therapy, compassion mind training, are, have a huge positive impact in a range of uh, clinical and non-clinical populations, such as parents and children, ex-service personnel with PTSD and their partners, individuals with obesity, or uh, adult female survivors of childhood sexual abuse. And in our research unit at CNAC, uh, University of Coimbra, we've also been trying to study this and looking at the impact of compassion-focused interventions on a range of clinical and non-clinical populations. For example, we have looked at adult and young offenders, uh, caregivers, um, psychosis. Um, so we have a lot of studies going on looking at the impact of compassion-focused interventions. And me, in my own work, I've been trying to pursue this as well. And I've been trying to develop, implement and evaluate the efficacy of compassion-focused interventions in particular, compassionate mind training on a range of uh, um, populations, namely non-clinical population, non populations, using a multi-method approach. And this is what I'm going to take you through now for a little bit, which is the studies that we've conducted. The first one, looking at how can we cultivate compassion for all. So here in this study, we developed a brief compassion mind training intervention for the general public and with this amazing team that I, that I had to work with. And we looked at the impact of these just two weeks of cultivating and practicing compassion. What is the effect of that? So what we found is that these participants who completed a two-week compassionate mind training 
actually, they increase their levels of self-compassion and their ability to receive compassion from others. They decrease their, less, their fears of compassion. They increase their positive affect, so they felt more safer, more connected, more relaxed in the world. They decrease their levels of shame and self-criticism and reduce their symptoms of anxiety and their perceived stress. So we thought this was quite uh, important because it's, it's just two weeks of practicing compassion uh, um, exercises. Um, so then we look at a major physiological indicator of the activation of our parasympathetic system, um, and all, which has been uh, used a lot as a, 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 a measure to evaluate the physio physiological impact of compassion. And we found that just two weeks of compassionate mind training actually improved uh, participants' heart rate variability. So this physiological indicator of an adaptive response to stress, which is associated with adaptive emotional regulation and also higher levels of safeness-based positive emotions. Um, and we also thought it would be important to understand actually what matters when you practice compassion. Is it how often you do the exercises? It is how you do the exercises? So what matters? So in the context of this study, we looked at practice quality and we found that more than how frequently you practice formally compassion exercises, compassion focused imagery, soothing rhythm breathing, mindfulness, is it is perceiving these exercises, this training as helpful to you, and especially being able to embody the compassion itself in everyday life and in moments of difficulty that are key to foster your compassionate self, your compassionate competencies, and reduce uh, psychological distress. So along with encouraging a continued practice of compassionate, uh, compassionate mind training exercises, practitioners should highlight the importance and helpfulness of embodying and cultivating the compassionate self. So for the past five to six years, I've been dedicating most of my research work to cultivating compassion in schools. And this project has been co uh, conducted in collaboration with uh, um, the University of Derby in the UK. And we've been basically developing, implementing and evaluating the efficacy of compassionate mind training interventions for the school community. So we have interventions for teachers, non-teaching staff, pupils and parents. Uh, and we've been studying the impact of these interventions on indicators of mental health um, well-being and biophysiological well-being as well through a series of pilot and randomized controlled trials. And this is the amazing team that I have uh, at the University of Coimbra that has been working with me on this project. And this is our amazing also UK research team. And also we have the collaboration of Niki Petrocchi from Italy. And these are some of the um, inspiring teachers that came along to our trainings uh, throughout these past five, uh, four years. Um, and so what did we find? So first, this first study explored the cross-cultural implementation efficacy of this compassionate mind training intervention for teachers. And we found that both in Portugal and in the UK, we found that the teachers, for the teachers, this compassion-focused intervention was useful and it was found effective 
in cross, this cross-cultural educational settings, not only in introducing and promoting a compassion-based school ethos, but also in cultivating psychological well-being well for those working in education. Then, after a pilot study of, with uh, 31 teachers, where we had very promising results in Portugal, we conducted a randomized controlled trial of this compassionate mind training intervention for teachers. And in, in this uh, uh, trial, we found that compassionate mind training for teachers is effective in promoting psychological well-being. It increases the flows of compassion in teachers. It increases feelings of relaxation, safeness, and connectedness to others. It promotes teachers' job satisfaction and life satisfaction. It promotes feelings of safeness, connection, and vitality in the workplace, decreases their self-criticism, reduces burnout, depression and stress, and also reduces feelings and responses of threats in the workplace. And we also found that these improvements were maintained at the three-month follow-up. Um, here, we also looked at heart rate variability, and we also found that for the teachers who underwent the compassionate mind training interventions, they revealed significant improvements in heart rate variability. So this further corroborates, corroborates this notion that compassionate mind training may produce an increase uh, in vagal tone, which is associated with the downregulation of our physiological arousal in the face of stress and life challenges, and is also associated with the experience of interpersonal safeness and intrapersonal safeness, along with a greater capacity for emotion regulation, metacognitive awareness, and empathy. And recently, this is not published yet, submitted, but we have conducted in the UK, not in Portugal, but in the UK, a pilot study of the compassionate mind intervention for pupils aged from 6 to 11 years old, and we found very promising results of the effect of the compassion mind training for pupils in improving uh, children's pro-social behaviors, the classroom environment, and in protecting against deteriorations in child mental health. So what are we doing now? So now, uh, I am very excited about this work and very excited to present to you for the first time the results of this work, this is a new project that we started last year that is looking basically at extending this Compassion in Schools project, but evaluating the impact of this Compassionate Mind Training Intervention on neuroendocrine, autonomic, immunological biomarkers and epigenetic mechanisms of prosociality and stress, along with exploring the impact on indicators of mental well, uh, uh, health and well-being. So we started this last year. We conducted uh, one group with 36 teachers. So this is just the first group. And the teachers underwent these compassionate mind training interventions for eight weeks. And um, before that time, so before the intervention, they were assessed twice uh, to establish a, a base, an intra-individual baseline. So it was, they were assessed the first time, then two months afterwards, they did the intervention, and then they were assessed again after the intervention, and again three months afterwards. And in these assessments, we collected their blood, their saliva, we measured their heart rate variability while doing an experimental task, and they filled out a set of self-report questionnaires. So, what did we find? <laughs> you excited? I'm so excited. This is the first time I'm showing these results. 
So, in terms of the mental health and well-being, basically we found uh, um, our results corroborate what we had previously found in our RCT. Uh, we just used a few different measures, so we also uh, uh, found that this intervention promoted flourishing, which is a new uh, measure that we introduced, um, and everything, and psychological flexibility, everything else, basically, we found the same effect, and we also found that these improvements were advanced or maintained that three-month month, uh, three follow-up. Then we wanted to explore the impact of the intervention on immunological markers and the conserved transcriptional response to adversity gene expression. So we started with, we started with the impact of compassion mind training on our, what we call, immune response profiling. So when we try to analyze our immune response profiling, we can look at different things. So we began to look at what we call most frequent populations of cells that are involved in the immune response. Uh, in this case, T cells, B cells, and natural killer cells. And what we found was that natural killer cells of the teachers who underwent the compassion mind training intervention seemed to be decreased after the intervention, either at post-intervention. So it's these natural killer cells, we know that they are at the front line of the immune response and the innate immune response, and they correlate with effective response to infection, stress, and cancer. Then we were interested in the, this 53 gene signature, signature that we call the conserved transcriptional response to adversity, which is a set of 53 genes formed by pro-inflammatory genes, type 1 interferon response genes, and genes related to the antibody synthesis. And all of these genes basically are related to the, our body's ability to respond to infections, cancer initiation process, processes, inflammation processes, bacteria, uh, um, block bacteria, block viruses, and other infectious agents. So this is what we, uh, we did. So we looked at, in relation to type 1 interferon response genes, what we found was that in the teachers that underwent the compassion mind training intervention, we found a decreased expression of the genes associated with type 1 interferon, res interferon response. And this believes that, we believe that this might indicate a potential modulation of the immune system of these teachers after undergoing the intervention, because there seems to be a reduction in the systemic inflammation after the compassionate mind training intervention. We also look at pro-inflammatory genes, in particular this gene, the June, uh, the seed June, which is a transcription factor that, that is involved and very important in our cellular response to stress and inflammation. And we found a decreased expression of June after the compassionate mind training intervention, which uh, uh, might indicate the that the development of compassion, motivation and competencies may have a stress-reducing effect on teachers at the cellular level. Then we, we did some other very complicated things. And basically, in this, this is a heat map, a clustering analysis, analysis of the, the set of 50, 53 genes. And basically, what we can see here, and this is just very preliminary data, is that you can see the, the reds at M2 and, the, and M3 and the green. So the reds, uh, um, they sign an increase 
in the gene expression and the greens sign a decrease in gene expression. And basically what we found is that, as you can see, there is a pattern of increased expression in, in, this, in some of these genes and also a pattern of decreased expression in other genes after the compassion mind training intervention. So, this preliminary data, uh, we believe that it suggests that the, this uh, conserved transcriptional uh, um, uh, response to adversity genes seem to be able to identify changes obtained after a compassion-focused intervention. And so cultivating compassion using compassion mind training may have a positive impact on markers of the immune system associated with how our bodies respond to stress, infection and cancer, as well as on reducing the expression of genes associated with our body's response to stress and inflammation. So next we are going to do some more epigenetic analysis on DNA methylation of aging biomarkers, but also looking at the glucocorticoid receptor gene, which is associated with our stress response, and the oxytocin receptor gene, associated with positive affiliative systems, prosociality, and affiliation. So, cultivating compassion can promote well-being and flourishing, reduce psychological distress and mental health difficulties, and have beneficial effects on physical health, improving autonomic physiological regulation and immune function, and impacting gene expression. So, that's why we need a compassion revolution. Because compassion provides the strength the wisdom and the courage to face suffering, seek to resolve conflicts, build empathic bridges, and strengthen cooperative relationships. And these are fundamental skills to face the threats that we are facing in today's world. The threats of climate change, uh, systemic poverty, and worsening uh, social inequalities. Cultivating compassion at different levels of complexity from nations, organizations, communities to individuals offers the pathways for the world we all seek to build. And throughout this journey, this personal and research journey, I experienced my own compassion revolution. And recently, my role as Clara's mum has really taught me about the importance of being compassionate. And I've learned so much uh, uh, throughout this process and I've been trying to continually, continuously develop my compassionate self, try to truly embody compassion in my life, in my relationship to myself, to others, and to be a model of compassion to my daughter, Clara. And in this trip, uh, I've been, as you know, I've been here in Australia, a long way from home, and my compassionate self has been key to help me face and deal with the challenges, you know, deal with being away from her, uh, also helping to soothe her when she misses me. It has given me the courage and the encouragement that I need also to be here and be excited to be here uh, and also to accept other, people, other people's support and help and love and care. And because you have made me feel at home, uh, um, so not yet. <laughs> so my question to you is this, how can you 
in your own lives harness this power of compassion that we all have within us, the seeds of compassion. How can you harness this power? How can you be more sensitive to the suffering within yourselves or in your outer world? And how can you develop the wisdom, the strength, the courage, the caring commitment to actually embody this superpower and transform your lives and the lives of those around you. Thank you very much. Given the time, I think we might maybe just have one question. So, uh, whoever holds your hand up the highest, I'll bring the mic around. Would anyone like to ask one question before we finish off? so much for that question that's a, a very important question it all it's all about these resistances we all have resistances fears and blocks in different levels to compassion and actually what you are sharing is um, we found in our research that fears of self-compassion and of receiving compassion from others are usually the ones that are more prominent amongst people so in compassion focused therapy in compassion mind training we not only seek to work with the facilitators of compassion, so to everything that actually helps you to develop these competencies within you, but also we work with the inhabitors, so with everything that hinders this ability that we have to cultivate compassion within us. So we would go and actually address these fears, blocks and resistances, for example, to self-compassion. Does that make sense? Yeah? Thank you. All right, well, I enjoyed so much that photo before that I thought I'd... Yes, I, I wanted to do that as well. Let's do a selfie, yeah. No, no, I just think you... I, no. I'll stay out of this one. <laughs> I was going to do a selfie. I feel bad. I'm, I'm, okay, my back um, is to you. Waving. Waving. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be in the way. It's good, it's good. Ready? Waving, everyone. Great. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. We'll be hovering around for a few minutes if there's any other little questions, but otherwise.
See you next year. See you.